You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Political risk. That is something that all investors have to face, and it's coming front burner here as we get close to the election. What does it mean? What does the uh, uh, president's physical condition. How does this all factor into the calculus for an investor trying to gauge uh, the future performance of the stock market? To get the latest, we welcome Phil Orlando, Chief Equity Market Strategist and Head of the Client Portfolio and Management Team at Federated Hermes. $68 billion in equity under management, over $600 billion firm-wide. So Federated Hermes is all over the markets. Phil, thanks so much for joining us here. My Again, pleasure. let's just try to digest what we've learned over the past uh, 48, 72 hours about the president, uh, his medical condition, what that might mean for, I guess, just kind of the market view, view for fiscal stimulus. How are you trying to discount all of this new information into your outlook? Well, in a word, it's a mess. Um, <laughs> you you uh, try to process the news that we got, I guess, early Friday morning. Uh, that the president and the first lady and a number of staffers had tested positive. What does this mean? Um, Initially, you say, well, is he going to be able to execute his duties? If not, then we've got to roll down to, you know, the next in the chain of companion. Uh, 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 Pence after him, Speaker Pelosi after him, uh, et cetera. Then it's, well, okay, if, if he's doing okay, uh, what does that do to his ability to campaign? Uh, what does it do for these next two presidential debates coming up on October 15th and October 22nd? Uh, is he going to be cleared to participate? Are they going to have to go remote? Are we going to have to cancel them? So you, you've called in a question a number of issues in terms of governing. Are we going to be able to get this phase four fiscal uh, stimulus package through? Uh, the debate, the election, uh, Vice President Biden has tested negative, I believe, twice. Uh, but, you know, he's a little on in years as well. I guess we've got to keep track of him to make sure he stays nice and healthy. So th- there's a, a cloud of uncertainty over the entire process with a month to go ahead of the election. So it's, it's, in a word, it's a mess. Well, are you and your managers then, Phil, spending more time thinking about what a Biden victory, an outright victory with sort of no, you know, court action, what that might mean for markets? 
So we've been focused on that for for several months, um, and and the key issue is not so much the presidency, uh, but the Senate, um, because the uh, if you had a blue wave, as it were, if, if the Democrats ran the table, uh, a legislative mandate would would mean something materially different in terms of a change in fiscal policy and then impact on economic growth, corporate earnings growth, and stock prices, as opposed to divided government. So we've you know, developed a matrix to look at all of these different combinations and permutations. And, and right now, uh, you know, it's a little too early to tell. The, to that point, there are two conflicting signals that, of things that we watch pretty closely that are pointing in completely different directions. On the one hand, you've got the, the, the betting markets, which in the immediate aftermath of, of President Trump's illness uh, surged in favor of Vice President Biden. I think there's like a 62% chance that he's going to win versus a 38% chance uh, that uh, the president is going to win. And, and, and that's the lowest number we've seen for the president this cycle. Yet, on uh, the other signal is the performance of the S&P 500 itself uh, since the beginning of August. And that indicator right now is up about 3.5% uh, collectively. And historically, when the S&P is positive during this period, that, that typically signals that the incumbent party is going to win the election. So you've got two different signals pointing in completely different directions. Which one do we respect? How do we plan? So, Phil, do you expect, given this uh, messiness that you characterize as it relates to the president and his health and the, uh, some members of Congress, Fiscal stimulus, are you expecting any, or are you just saying this is a 2021 event? So our expectations for fiscal stimulus, and, and you and I talked about this, were high in July. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're very low right now. That, that while the numbers are narrowing, the, the Democrats in the House have taken their offer, uh, their ask down to about $2.2 trillion. The Republicans in the Senate are up to about $1.5 trillion. But it, it, while you can say, okay, well, let's just split the difference. Let's call it you know, $2 trillion and call it a day. The, the two sides are very far apart on, on three key issues. I think money uh, for the cities and the states, uh, the uh, the idea of liability protection uh, for businesses that have done the right thing to protect their their uh, clients and their employees, and and the idea of this six hundred dollar a week unemployment bonus extending that out through the end of January. And until we get some conceptual movement uh, on some or all of those issues, I, I just don't see us being anywhere. Yeah, Phil, I suppose it's time to just sit back and relax and wait, right? <laughs> if you can do that in the market. Does anybody relax in the market when they have positions on? All right, Phil Orlando, thank you so much for joining Federated Hermes Chief Equity Market Strategist and Head of Client Portfolio Management. And I'm sure he's getting a lot of calls these days. Yeah. $68.2 billion in equity and $604 billion firm-wide, Paul. Yeah, it's just extraordinary. I mean, Phil's kind of laying out, you have market risk, um, which people are, you know, are paid to measure. Uh, you've got political risk, which is we're really peaking here. And then you've got the whole pandemic risk here. So there's a lot for investors, obviously, to try to digest as they try to formulate a plan for the near, intermediate, and, and longer term. I love what our Live team t- says about the treasury market, because, of course, we did see that move to 74 basis points. They talk about a crowded treasury market due for some social distancing. <laughs> Apparently, there's a lot of short positions and long bond futures. 
Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio. Well, just as many areas of New York City may end up getting shut down again, I thought that it was interesting to see some recent housing data and some recent studies that showed that Manhattan, at least, shows prices going up, even if inventory is coming on the market and there aren't as many sales. So let's bring in somebody who knows exactly what's going on in terms of Manhattan and the five boroughs. Bess Friedman is CEO of Brown Harris Stevens. Bess, thank you so much for joining. And just let me explain maybe a little clearer. Apartments in the third quarter in Manhattan sold for higher prices than they did pre-pandemic. Now, not as many of them sold, but it's still surprising to me that that was the case, that they went for higher prices. Can you give us the explanation? Yes, I can. I think there's a little bit of confusion because uh, in the third quarter, we had some uh, about 16 closings of a very high-end project, which adjusted the price up. So it's not really an accurate representation of the average uh, sales price. And then comparing it to the third quarter of 2019, we had a really uh, not positive 2019 third quarter because so many people tried to close in the second quarter because of the new mansion tax. So um, that had an impact as well. And also some of the prices and closings that you're seeing are partially uh, due to pre-pandemic contracts that were signed. So it's a mixed bag. Although I will tell you that the New York City real estate market has picked up uh, modestly and we're doing much better. I mean, the second quarter, uh, we were closed down pretty much. So we're having a, a huge increase and we're very happy about that. Bess, where are we in maybe just Manhattan or wherever you feel most comfortable commenting in terms of vacancy rates now versus we were pre-pandemic and how bad do you think it could get? You know, it's it's hard to tell. I mean, think about this. There's been a lot of media saying, let's just say that, you know, it's not a ghost town here. There are people that are buying, renting here. We're seeing the numbers. Um, but we certainly have more supply than we did before. Um, and it's too soon to say whether people are just temporarily leaving the city or they're permanently. So that stuff is still, it's uncertain. Um, but there are plenty of rentals um, and the rental market is a bit soft. Um, and so that's opportunity for people. But um, And there are a lot of condos, new developments that um, there's a lot of vacancies there. But that was a problem before the pandemic even hit. So we're still wrestling with all of those things. Um, but having said that, if you look at the third quarter numbers overall, uh, it's clear that New York City ha is awake and busy and the market is doing pretty well considering. At what price point are you seeing the most action, Bess? And, and what are the, if, the, if it's a skewed picture that we've been looking at, then what is sort of your, your sense of what the average pandemic discount is? I would guess if I had to say, it's hard to put a blanket over it because obviously the high end has been impacted much more uh, than the lower end, but we're seeing most of the business under a million 
about 50% of the deals of contracts signed uh, have been about uh, have been under a million. But and then you're seeing the next between one and two million. It's about 26%. Um, and then the high end, if you are between two and three million, that's about 12% of the market. So if something is priced right, even if it's 10 million dollars, uh, it's selling. But we're very sensitive to overpricing. And the sellers that are anchored to these pre-pandemic prices and are not realistic, their uh, their apartment or their home is just sitting there. Uh, so we know that people have to be realistic if they do want to sell. Talk to us, uh, if, you, if you would, Bess, about the rental um, market. What kind of price discounts are you seeing in the market today um, that kind of surprise you here? You know, you're seeing, uh, you know, for the first time, you're seeing landlords being incredibly flexible, um, offering two and three months rent uh, for free. Uh, And I'm seeing a lot of landlords let tenants renegotiate, even though they have a fully executed lease um, that, you know, let's say goes for another year or two. Tenants are calling landlords and saying, look, you know, it's a different environment. I signed this before the pandemic. I'd like a, a discount, and I'm seeing as much as 10 to 15% off of leases that were already fully executed. So landlords um, don't want to have somebody leave. They don't want to have to. They, so they're, they're negotiating. They're being much more reasonable throughout. Bess, what do you say to somebody who can carry the cost of a place but definitely wants to sell at some point? Are they better off to keep carrying that cost until the picture is more clear as to when, if ever, Manhattan comes back, if they can? Or do, do you really advise them, look, just, just lower the price, get rid of it, let somebody else carry the cost of it? I mean, it really depends on their circumstances. If they if they need to sell, um, they should price it right. And, you know, we've had, we had a bidding war last week. Um, and on something that was $4 million. Um, so if it's priced right... What did it have? <laughs> it, it was just, an, you know, what's important to a lot of people is they want to be close to where they have to go to temple or to school. Mm-hmm. They want to be able to walk. You know, right now people are concerned about public transportation because they're worried about their health and safety. As you know, New York City's transportation, subways, buses, all of that is so important. But people are now opting to want to be able to walk to where they have to go right. uh, just to be safe. So when if an apartment is close to a school, for example, people are saying, yes, that's perfect yep. because I can walk. My kid. So that's been taken into account. But if you can hold off and you have time and you can right. wait, you could potentially wait a little bit. Hey, Bess, thank you so much once again for joining us. We always appreciate your insight into the real estate world of New York City. Bess Friedman, CEO, Brown Harris Stevens, giving us the update on the Manhattan real estate market. Time to get back to the president, his health, and what we might find out exactly, especially after this news that we just learned that Katie McEnany has also tested positive for the coronavirus. So let's bring in Jamie Metzl, senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, former National Security Council official and founder and chair of the global movement One Shared World. So, Jamie, talk to us about your reaction to all of this it's spreading like wildfire in the white house there don't seem to have been any precautions to try to save other people and there still aren't we just heard today that just now that kaylee mcenany who has apparently been briefing reporters maskless over the last couple of days also has it yeah no, no, we can't be surprised it's, it's total chaos a uh, lack of awareness lack of honesty lack of transparency uh, everything that has characterized the Trump administration throughout the entirety of his, uh, his administration 
um, is now defining uh, how our country and the White House respond to this uh, to this terrible crisis. And um, this is why we're in such danger. This is why our, our country is at such unnecessary risk. Uh, and um, it's just unimaginable that when they had enough information to start being careful, um, the president put his perceived narrow interest above the interest of the White House, his colleagues, his family, and uh, and the country. And it's, it's really concerning. And this is the kind of of crisis that could have huge, not just national, but global uh, implications. And the callousness with which this administration is behaving is just breathtaking. Jamie, given your experience um, on the National Security Council, what is the national security implications of what we're experiencing right now and over the past several days? So our allies count on the United States to be a, a uh, found, we play a foundational role in the world. And there's a reason why all of our allies don't need to build million-person armies or develop their own nuclear weapons, and that's because they believe that the United States has their back, and we have for, for many, many decades. With the U.S. in chaos, um, with so many questions, being raised about the validity of our election by the president of the United States, our allies need to be worried about whether we have the ability to back them up. And our adversaries uh, will recognize that this is a moment uh, of opportunity. We've been seeing that for a while with the behavior, certainly, of China and Russia, um, recognizing that, um, that in many ways the world is more of a free-for-all now that, that the United States, um, because of the unimaginable um, uh, poor behavior of the, uh, of the Trump administration, the U.S. is in many ways out of the game in big ways globally. What about the Senate, Jamie? I mean, this is not just the executive, right? It's, it's, it's other branches of government that it's impacting too. And in fact, all branches of government at this point, because, you know, even as Mitch McConnell says, the timeline is going to be the same for the SCOTUS appointment. It could very well be that that doesn't actually transpire. So, you know, have you ever seen anything like this, that the, the government sort of infects itself from within? You know, we, we've seen it in the United States where we had our, our civil war. Um, governments have broken down uh, over history. Certainly it happened to the Romans. It's happened to uh, lots of, of governments where there's pressures from without and collapse and decay from, uh, from within. Uh, I'm certainly a very patriotic American, but it's heartbreaking uh, to see the president of the United States doing to our country what our adversaries have tried and failed uh, to do to us for many, many uh, decades. What do you think, Jamie, if we can just kind of hypothesize about a potential for a Biden win in this election, how do you think he will approach national security and our relationship with our allies and others around the world? Can we we go back to kind of the way it was before? Yeah, and so, and and Joe Biden is my... uh, in full disclosure, he's my former boss many, many years ago when he was on the Senate Foreign, uh, Foreign Relations Committee. But a Biden foreign policy is going to look in many ways more traditional. Uh, we have our close allies around the world, countries like Japan, Australia. 
Australia, Korea, European Union countries, and others, and rather than, than praising our adversaries like Putin and, and the Russians and attacking our friends, uh, we're going to try to build, you know, we, the, the Biden administration, a Biden administration, um, would try to build a world um, based on common goals, building alliances, bringing people and countries together to do great things. And that's what America is about. That's what we've been about. Not about pitting one group uh, against each other, against each other as the Trump administration has done. Not undermining science. Not knowingly infect, uh, infecting people or endangering people just for for political stunts. So I think that many of us have grown accustomed to the United States playing a responsible role in the world. We can still play that role, but we have to do things very differently from what is happening now. What is the best case scenario from here, Jamie? And and I realize that's a difficult question to answer. So in the short term, I certainly hope uh, that President Trump has a speedy recovery. Uh, and then I hope that, that everybody who's been uh, infected by the, the callous behavior of, of the president and the administration, they have a speedy recovery. Yeah. And then I hope that they recognize that what they've been doing, undermining the scientists, encouraging people to not wear wear masks. All of these things is the wrong way to go. Yes. And maybe there's an opportunity to bring the country together around doing the right thing. Jamie, thank you so much. That is Jamie Metzel, a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, former national security official, founder and chair of the global movement One Shared World. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Today we are joined by Max Neeson, biotech farmer and healthcare columnist for Bloomberg Opinion as we await uh, comments from the doctors at Walter Reed Medical Center, perhaps about uh, when President Trump uh, will be released, and we'll bring that to you. Max, thanks so much for joining us here. Boy, there's so much information and perhaps misinformation or just confusion about uh, President Trump and his time at Walter Reed, uh, the treatments he has received. Um, what do you know as the latest? What do we know? Uh, so, you know, all of this is with the caveat that, you know, I'm not a physician. And, and as you said, I'm, I'm working from information that has been um, at times quite contradictory and, and confusing. But, you know, the latest update we got was um, was yesterday, the news that, that he potentially could be discharged as soon as today. Uh, but that news, of course, was, was sort of countered by the fact that, that we got the news that he was on a third um, significant medication, uh, dexamethasone, a powerful steroid generally given to people that, that have quite severe COVID as a way to, to tamp down a potentially dangerous inflammatory response. Um, you know, the use of that medication would tend to, in a vacuum in other cases, point you towards uh, the notion that you're dealing with a more significant case uh, or, or more severe disease. But of course, the fact that they've been, you know, quite aggressive about drug treatment the whole time, giving him Regeneron's experimental antibody, even though they just released, um, you know, early 
stage data last week, moving on to remdesivir, and now this. It, it all just makes for um, a really difficult-to-parse scenario, especially when you have new information that, that changes day-to-day about what's happened on, on any given day of, of the president's treatment. So um, it's tough to tell, really. And also the possibility that the, that all the doctors might have decided to just front load everything, to throw everything at this at the president at the very beginning to try to stop it from becoming a, a, a bad case. Whether that's the right approach or not, I, I certainly don't know, but that seems to be what they're doing. The president has been tweeting for the last four hours, you know, all caps tweets about various different things. Is it possible that he feels better because medicine is working right now, but, you know, discharging him would be potentially very dangerous? Uh, you know, it, it's really, again, difficult to tell. Um, just because, you know, we, we know some about how, how all of these medicines work individually. We know very, very little about how they might affect somebody used altogether or in concert. I'm, I'm not aware of um, a significant amount of data for the use of any two of the medicines together rather than all three. And and then both, rem, you know, Regeneron's medicine because it's new, uh, remdesivir because of potential liver and kidney impacts, and then dexamethasone because it affects a variety of different sets, uh, body systems and, and dampens the immune system. All medicines that you would expect to have um, a significant amount of, of, you know, attention and follow-up paid on top of the fact that, you know, the president has a symptomatic case of COVID and is 74 and overweight. So, again, you know, it, it all, it's a, it's a picture that, given the limited facts that we know, is, is sort of difficult to, to piece together with the notion of, of leaving the hospital today. But, you know, again, you, you can, there are significant medical facilities at the White House. Um, we don't really know that much about his condition. So this is all, at the end of the day, um, speculation and speculation made necessary by, you know, poor disclosure from his physicians. Mm. Max, give us the latest uh, from your reporting on kind of where we are in terms of vaccines. Is there any change in the timeline? It's, I, I guess the consensus was you, know, you might get something late this year, early next year, and then maybe by mid next year have maybe broader dissemination or distribution. Is that still kind of what you're hearing? That, that sounds about right. Um, and and the, the kind of key mediating factor here is when you get data and then when you might get an approval decision and how broad that is. Two different things. We could conceivably um, sometime within the next month, if, if Pfizer's vaccine is, is doing really well, get efficacy data, but it will take time to evaluate that. And the FDA may want more safety data. So that timeline you pointed out, um, Still sounds about right to me. Any initial approval is going to, and availability is going to be quite narrow, and um, it's it's going to take some time to get the confidence in the data, and quite frankly, the number of doses needed and infrastructure to have uh, broad vaccination. For that, you're you're looking at next year. I just want to point out while we have Max on that we did get the Nobel Prize in medicine today and it went to the discoverers of the um, hepatitis C virus and and, and, and uh, treatment for that. So that's something worth noting. We also had a deal today, Max, Bristol-Myers' $13 billion deal. Hearty indeed, as you say. Why is it hearty? 
so it's a deal for Myocardia, a manufacturer of or an investigational novel heart drug. And for Bristol-Myers Squibb, it's, it's a move away from cancer drugs uh, towards, towards something with a little bit more of a, a less competitive, clear path to um, you know, potentially addressing a, a pretty sizable market. So um, interesting to see that in a deal in a year where the biggest deals have been instead for cancer drugs. So, so something that I, I think may uh, may well pay for off for them in uh, in targeting the the heart market, which can be very lucrative. So, Max, does this suggest? I mean, it just feels like in the healthcare business, you know, it, it's ripe for deals. We get the deal activity remains pretty consistent, pretty heavy. Is this just an example of you know Bristol Myers saying I can either develop? Uh, this drug or this therapeutic, or I can go buy it, and I just have to figure out what's the best economic model. Is that kind of what we saw here today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, there there has been some muting of deal activity, but relative to most other sectors of the economy, uh, the pharmaceutical business has done you know pretty well uh, during the pandemic. People still need medicines, uh, and and they will into the future. Add into that, you know, low borrowing costs. Um, the continual need to come up with with new therapies, and you know the high failure rate of research and development. You're going to continue to see, um, I think, some some pretty good deal flow uh, going forward for for this type of medicine and others. And Max, uh, finally, you know, what would be the one question you'd love to hear from the team at the Walter Reed Hospital today? Because presumably we'll hear from them at some point soon, briefly. Um, you know, there, there are quite a lot, but I, I think more detail on, on when and why he's needed oxygen supplementation, what the plan is to, to take him off of dexamethasone, um, what their rationale is for if they do move him out of the hospital for doing so, yes. given that he's on all these therapies, and, and uh, the, the status of his lung scans. Not much detail on what exactly they saw there. All right, four questions from Max Neeson, biotech, pharma and healthcare columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. And we thank him very much for his time. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.